Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team. And we're on the podcast to try and break down some of the more challenging issues that are in front of employers with respect to their group health plans and their compliance efforts with their group health plans. And uh, Suzanne, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a couple of weeks. It has been a while. Good to be back. Yes. And we're in a new year, 2024. Um, We're excited for our topic today. We are going to do a deep dive into what's going on with the No Surprises Act. And this is a newer topic, I feel like, or at least it's with the with the laws that have come out in the last few years, it's something that's a lot more top of mind and something employers have to think about. But as usual, let's start with a quick overview of what we are talking about when we say the No Surprises Act. So the No Surprises Act, I'm going to refer to it as the NSA just for brevity. Um, it went into effect in 2022, and it's viewed really by a lot of people as one of the more sweeping consumer health protection laws since the ACA. But Congress passed it to prevent surprise medical bills, and those are bills that patients receive for emergency services, whether in or out of network, or that they receive at an in-network hospital by an out-of-network provider. So think of like an anesthesiologist or a radiologist. Interestingly, at the time, the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, the neutral scorekeeper for Congress, They determined that the NSA would result in smaller payments to some providers that would reduce premiums um, by about a half a percent to one percent. And they determined that it would reduce the overall national deficit by almost 17 billion with a B over 10 years. So it's interesting how that small amount can equate to such a large uh, dollar amount. But in, in general, what the NSA limits is what a patient will have to pay out of pocket Um, in those situations, and it's limited to the amount that they would have had to pay had those services been provided by an in-network provider. So their cost share is determined at in-network rates. Because the patient is only required to pay a portion of the bill, their balance remains. So thus, the providers and the insurers have to determine how to resolve the remaining balance. And if they are unable to negotiate Um, that amount, then they can submit it to a dispute resolution process, which is a baseball style arbitration uh, at the federal level in which each party will submit really their best offer. And then a third party arbiter will pick one payment offer as the final payment amount. And so sounds easy enough, right? But it, it really has not been. And the rollout of this whole independent dispute resolution process or IDR will refer to it has been plagued with controversy. So um, there's been some recent developments. So I thought it would be good if we addressed some of the controversy and look forward to what's coming in the pipeline for 2024 um, with respect to regulations and just give an overall feel for what's happening with the IDR process. Yeah. And it's like so many of the issues that we cover on this podcast and that employers deal with is the concepts here are, are usually pretty simple. But when you get down into the nitty-gritty, the day-to-day, the operational, it becomes very uh, gruesome in a way, right? Like just so much going on and also 
um, just um, logged bogged down with uh, with the details. So let's start with an overview of usage or volume when it comes to that IDR process. Is this process something that is widely used, or is it something that is there but doesn't really impact our overall payment system? Yeah, I think this is interesting because it really kind of puts things in perspective. You think IDR, it sounds kind of like a remote issue possibly, but they did a status update report back in April of 2023. So there hasn't been one yet in 2024, that at least that I've seen. Um, and in that report, it stated that since the federal claim submission portal went live, and that's the portal, again, at the federal level that they use to uh, start the IDR process. So since the time that it went live, the disputing parties had initiated more than 330,000 arbitration submissions, and that was nearly 14 times greater than the departments had initial initially estimated. So the sheer volume of the claims that are running through that system has drastically slowed down the, the adjudication of the claims that have been submitted there because, again, they weren't anticipating that level of volume. Uh, the report also stated that the IDR, that's the Independent Dispute Resolution Entities, made have made determinations in only a small fracture, fraction of those cases. So there's to the to date, um, to that date, uh, in other words, there were, were approximately 42,000 disputes out of 330,000 that had been decided. Interestingly, and I think this is a point to keep in mind when we talk through some of the issues as we go forward today, the initiating party, which is generally the healthcare provider, have pre have prevailed almost 71% of the time. Uh, that's really significant. So finally, the report also noted that the IDRs had closed more cases than they had decided. So overall, more than 100,000 claims had been closed. And so you say, why would a... Um, claim be closed instead of resolved? Well, there's just different reasons for that to occur. Sometimes claims were closed because there had been successful negotiation um, between the parties. Others were closed because one or both parties failed to submit the required fees. So there are fees, which we'll talk about in a bit, that are mandated under the NSA. And then a large number, nearly 40,000 were closed for eligibility reasons. So claims are not eligible for determination or for arbitration under the NSA for multiple reasons. It could be just lack of timely negotiation of arbitration submission. It could be because the disputed claim involves an insurance program that's outside of the scope of the NSA. Um, but there were a significant amount that were just closed. So Overall, the IDR process has been accessed way more than anticipated. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, Three hundred thirty thousand is that's a lot coming through the pipeline. So you can you can see why uh, they're having some of these issues. In addition to that, um, I understand there have been a number of court challenges here to the IDR process. Can you give us some overview of what's been going on in the courts um, surrounding this topic? Yes, as you can imagine, when the CBO states that uh, a new law is going to impact an industry like a provider group and the provider equity interest um, by possibly receiving lower reimbursement rates or lower revenue, of course, that's going to get the ire of that industry. And so to date, at least 20 different cases have been filed. Uh, the Texas Medical Association is one of those significant players that we see coming up and up again in the NSA lawsuits. The first lawsuit we refer to as T TMA1, the Texas Medical Association, their first lawsuit. In that lawsuit, they asserted that the interim rule that had been issued by the departments 
contradicted what the act itself required because the interim rule said that the IDR entity, that's again, the entity that makes these, that selects the offer that have been submitted by the provider and the insurer. They said the IDR had to select the offer that was closest to the qualifying payment amount. So that is also referred to as QPA. Think, remember that term because you will hear that again and again, QPA qualifying payment amount. Um, and it is defined as the medium rate that an insurer would have paid had the out-of-network services been provided in-network. So what has been argued by the providers is that the QPA really favors the insurers because it's determined by the insurers. So under the interim rule, the um, IDRs were required to favor the QPA and its outcome. They could consider some of those other items that were listed in the act, which were things like considering the market share of the provider or the payer, considering the provider's level of training. So obviously someone with greater training would be reimbursed at a higher rate. The acuity of the patients that were treated, you know, a greater acuity would again result in a greater reimbursement rate. The teaching status of the hospital and whether the parties had entered into good faith efforts to, um, to complete a network agreement. So the interim rule said that only when there was credible evidence demonstrated that the QPA was not the best measure of value could they consider one of these other factors. This requirement, the plaintiffs asserted, favored the QPA as obviously the threshold for determining what the payment would be. And the courts agreed. So following this lawsuit, the departments went back to the drawing board and they issued a final rule in August of 2022 which directed the, the IDRs to consider the QPA first, but stated that they could consider the non-QPA factors. And if they had left it there, it would have been possibly okay, but they went on to include additional restrictions and said that the IDR had to presume that the QPA was credible, but they had to evaluate the credibility of the non-QPA factors. So again, showed favoritism to the QPA as the threshold for determining which offer to select. Right. So that, that favoritism in the final rule, even though maybe a minor adjustment, probably is not enough to uh, appease the TMA and other providers, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Texas Medical Association didn't like this outcome either with, with what the final rule said. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so, so they came back again. And this time they were joined by LifeNet, an air ambulance provider. And again, they challenged the final rule, saying that the revised arbitration profits a provision was still improperly uh, derived, and it still restricted the IDR's authority to consider the non-QPA factors. And, and again, the court agreed at the summary judgment level and stated that the final rule, once again, exceeded the department's rulemaking authority. Um, they determined the new rule really favored the QPAs because they required the IDRs to consider that factor first and stated that nothing in the act instructed them to weigh any one of the factors more heavily than the others. They also said that the act um, did not limit their ability to consider the non-QPA factors or, or the act did not impose additional scrutiny on any of the other factors. So really, as the act laid it out, they, they looked at um, all of the factors equally and didn't show any favoritism towards one or the other. So it's really interesting to see that this argument is being made given the stats that we talked about earlier in terms of the outcomes of the cases so far. So even though QPA has been a, a factor in prior decisions, they've clearly still, the outcome has been favorable towards the providers. Um, but the court found that the departments couldn't salvage this portion of the rule. And so they vacated the provisions and they send it back to the department for 
um, once again, redrafting. Yeah, so we're in a little bit deep in the weeds of, of uh, how regulations work versus the statute itself, right? And so just super high level, what we're really talking about here is that the agencies are, who these are the departments of labor, uh, the IRS, these agencies within the government that are really there to regulate and enforce laws that are passed by Congress. Sometimes when they come up with their rules to help enforce or to provide guidance to those that have to follow the rules, sometimes they overstep their bounds. And that's kind of what they're, what, what the argument is going on in court here is uh, one side of the issue will, or one, one impacted party will say, the rule adversely affects me and that that's because the department decided to go too far in their rulemaking. So I remember another issue here, uh, Suzanne, uh, related to how contracted rates were defined in the regulation. Does that impact things here? Right. So again, uh, and talking about getting in the weeds, this is really getting into the weeds and I promise we'll get out of the weeds uh, shortly. But under the NSA, insurers calculate the QPA based on contracted rates for which is defined as the same or similar item or service that is provided by a provider in the same or similar specialty. But under the regulations, the insurer could include in the QPA for a given service, a contracted rate that was entered into by a physician who never even provided that service to patients. And so the example would be um, an anesthesiologist whose contract includes rates for dermatology services, even though the anesthesiologist never is going to provide that type of service. And the argument goes, because they're never going to provide that service, they really don't negotiate that part of their contract. Therefore, those rates are really below fair market value. And so by including the ghost rates in the QPA, it's really um, lowering the amount that should be determined. And those rates are called ghost rates. And so you may hear that term ghost rate, and that's what that's referring to. So the court agreed and said that they could not use those as part of the QPA calculation. Um, and then the court also wanted to mention this because it pertains to self-insured plans. They also vacated the regulations that would allow self-insured group health plans to calculate the QPA based on all rates that were negotiated by their TPA rather than only the rates that were negotiated for the specific plan. Before we sort of zoom back out to the higher level here and, and look and also look ahead to what, what might happen this year, wasn't there also a lawsuit on the fees associated with the IDR process? Yes. And, yes. And so we are, again, let me just mention, we're not going to hit on all areas that were in the lawsuits. We're, we just have touched on some of the key areas, but there's certainly other areas. And so as it pertains to the fees, so to access the arbitration process, both parties have to pay a non-refundable administration fee. And when the process first began back in 2022, the department had set the non-refundable admin fee at 50 bucks. But obviously, with the volume being as high as it was, they determined that they had greater needs or resources. And so they increased that fee to $350 for 2023. So the TMA, again, goes to bad if we want to stick with the baseball theme. And they sued, claiming that the fee hike would force many healthcare providers to surrender claims that they would have otherwise pursued because of this additional cost. And so that lawsuit ended in August of last year. And again, the court struck down that increased administrative fee, saying that the, the departments had not used the APA, that's the Administrative Procedures Act, had violated it because they hadn't gone through the proper rulemaking process. So again, uh, prevail for uh, the TMA. 
Yes, and I, I do like the baseball theme here because, uh, as we know, baseball season, the number of games baseball teams play much longer and more than any other uh, professional sports league out there. So we have a long season in baseball. We have a long process in what all this means, uh, having to work through courts here um, on all of this. So where where are we now? Well, the judge noted when they, when they vacated the regulations that um, it would be it, it would uh, extend to regulations nationwide. So that means even though here we're in Texas, um, it means that uh, it would extend to uh, claims that were submitted from other states as well. He said and he rejected arguments that this would be unduly disruptive to pause the um, the rulemaking once again. Um, and so I think that you can presume at this point that things are paused for all purposes in all states in terms of that application of the QPA threshold. But there's a number of other lawsuits that are hanging out there. There's one in the Second Circuit. This one could be certainly uh, appealed up to the Fifth Circuit. There's one in the Kentucky District Court. There's other Texas courts, Florida courts, to name a few. So there's there's multiple lawsuits that are ongoing. It's definitely been a messy process. Yes. Sounds very messy. What do you believe the next steps will be here? Well, um, as I mentioned, that so they could appeal to the Fifth Circuit. So we'll watch and see what happens there. Uh, and I mean, just in general, the ongoing litigation that are being pursued by the providers, of course, they have every right to do so. But it it poses significant implementation challenges for the administration. And then last year, the Biden administration proposed a rule um, that was uh, to make the billing disputes more efficient. And if finalized, the rule would require more open negotiation between the payers and providers before they submitted their dispute to the IDR. Again, they're trying to alleviate on the number of claims that are coming through the IDR process. That rule um, originally had its comment period closing, closing on January 2nd, but it's being reopened. Um, on January 17th, the departments issued a notice that they were going to reopen the period for submitted comments, and it would be reopened from the date of, um, you know, that was published in the Federal Register. And for 14 days thereafter, I honestly haven't checked to see it was published. They assumed it would be published uh, in January 22nd. So I assume that the comment period is open right now. Yeah. So a long process here. Uh, these laws, especially right after enactment, do take a while to sort of formulate and work their way through courts and get some clarification on what it all actually means. And so I know for employers listening, trying to understand all of this can be frustrating, like many compliance obligations can be again, particularly towards the beginning of, um, you know, implementation. So um, hang tight. There's more to come on this and lots of moving parts. We'll continue to follow it. We'll continue to track developments in our newsletter Compliance Corner, um, which is available at nfp.com. Um, one last thought, Suzanne. Um, I know you mentioned the comment period, and I'm guessing that providers and payers are submitting con con uh, comments there uh, to try and help formulate some of this legislation. But when any any thoughts on what providers and payers uh, would be asking for as far as how to fix or streamline this process? Yeah, obviously, it's going to differ depending on which one. But I think overall, they're both suggesting that additional resources to adjudicate the large volume of claims be provided. And that could mean um, additional arbitrage. That could also mean more enforcement. Um, this is coming from the providers, more enforcement so that the payers would calculate the key QPA correctly and make the payments on time to providers. That's been a complaint from the providers is that the payments are not being made on time. 
Mm-hmm. They've both said that CMS should invest in technology. Um, and that could do things like increase the transparency into claim status. And that would provide like a clearer dashboard of of all the various claims of where they are in the process. And so that would go a long way to mitigate payment display or payment delays. And and uh, so I, I think overall, they're looking to CMS to to really put more resources into this to make this the process go much smoother. Yeah. So definitely uh, more to come on this, but thank you, Suzanne, for walking us through the process, helping us understand a little bit better what we're talking about with the No Surprises Act and with this IDR process overall. Um, Stay tuned, audience. We'll continue to follow this and all of our other topics on future podcasts. And feel free to check out Compliance Corner, our newsletter at nfp.com. With that, Suzanne, I think think we're ready to wrap up, as we like to say. Right. Thanks for joining. Yep, that's a wrap.